after 50-some weeks of teaching through the book of Luke, this fall we are diving into some important topics. And uh, tonight we are launching a new series called Mirage. And I'll explain that in uh, just a minute. But let me just tell a story to get going. When I was a kid, I basically, I, I remember thinking this and basically having the assumption that I could accomplish anything I put my mind to. And you know, I guess that kind of philosophy or that kind of thinking um, has been helpful in accomplishing things in life. You know, I mean, persistence pays off, right? I've, I've seen, I've, I've learned some things. A lot of people just give up too soon in, in life. They just quit too soon. They, they quit short of getting to where they're hoping to go, right? Um, I've learned you don't accept the first no. And that's been really helpful for me in life. I've, I've learned some good things, and I think that trait and that way of thinking has benefited me. Um, but as I grew up, I discovered it wasn't altogether true. In fact, there were some glaring areas in my life where that wasn't true. One of them was I wanted at one point to be a bodybuilder. Oh, yeah, you're laughing at me. I can tell. I did. I read Arnold Schwarzenegger's book, and I wanted to be like Arnold. And I discovered something about the way I was, and that was that I was an endurance athlete. Anybody, any other endurance athletes out there? Yeah, I can run very slow for a very long time. I'm talking, okay, maybe like a fast walk or a fast hike, you know, maybe not. I can run, you know, very slow for a very long time. And uh, that's great if you wanted to be a marathoner or something like that. But guess what? I was not built, I was not wired up to be a linebacker or I was not wired up to be a bodybuilder. I mean, it just wasn't going to happen, right? And had I continued to believe that, either I would have hurt myself or, or I would have just failed and, you know, wound up feeling defeated in life had I continued to want to run down that path. Now, you intuitively know that. We all kind of intuitively know this, right? That's why if you have a, uh, a junior in high school and he's five foot two, you don't try to encourage him to pursue a career in the NBA, that's because I looked it up. The shortest guy ever to play in the NBA was five foot three. <laughs> yeah, there are only a few of them. So if he's five two, don't encourage him. It just probably isn't going to happen. You know what I mean? Um, so that's just kind of common sense, isn't it? And so today we're launching this new series called Mirage. And how many of you have seen a mirage in the desert? Almost all of us, right? It, it, the thing about a mirage is it looks real, doesn't it? You've all seen probably uh, an old Western movie or, or some kind of movie where the guy is crawling through the desert, you know, dragging himself through the desert, dying of thirst, and right out there is this beautiful, shimmery, shiny mirage. He chases it and, and gets close, and all of a sudden it disappears, and he's left thirsty. It doesn't satisfy. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about some popular spiritual ideas that appear to be true, but they're either untrue or they're incomplete. They're, they're either untrue or they're misunderstood in the way we apply them. And when they're held onto or wrongly applied, they can really hurt people. They can hurt your relationship with God. And for some even, perhaps this is one of the reasons why for a season you walked away from faith or maybe someone, a loved one in your life walked away from faith is because of a hurt that stemmed 
from some of these ideas. Now, to introduce these ideas, I'm going to dive right into an event that happened in the life of Jesus' most famous disciple, one of his most famous disciples named Peter, and it's found in Acts chapter 12. And normally I, um, you know, we talk a little bit more before we get into scripture, but I just want to dive right in today. We're going to look at this story, and then I'm going to talk about some really troubling things about it that I think you might be able to identify with. And this will set the stage for what we're going to talk about today. So in Acts chapter 12, this is uh, following a few years, following the resurrection of Jesus. And right after, weeks after the resurrection of Jesus, witnesses, eyewitnesses went out, risking their life, declaring that the guy that they had seen crucified and buried, they had spent time with him. He was alive. And this was a message that would go on to change the world. Well, the early church just exploded. It grew rapidly because of these people. And then after this, in Jerusalem, a great persecution broke out, which was tragic um, and really difficult for the followers of Jesus, but it had the effect of spreading this news. We call it the gospel, the good news about Jesus all over that whole region of the Roman Empire. And so it's right during this time of persecution that this account in the life of Peter occurs. And many of you have heard it, and it's kind of fun because it's kind of comical. Um, and so we'll go through it, um, and then I want to tell, t- draw out some of the things that I think are a little troubling in this account. So Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It was about this time, around this persecution, that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Remember, church means ecclesia or gathering. It's a group of believers. It's an assembly. It's a movement. And Herod, King Herod, had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. And so um, just, just to clue you in, in case uh, you're not real familiar with these Bible characters uh, that are named right in here, these three, James, Peter, James, and John, are the inner three. These are the three guys that are the closest disciples to Jesus. And James, Herod captures James. It's a pretty heavy situation. Peter is rotting in prison. Herod, all the religious leaders and the, the, the people are happy with him because he's, he's killed off you know, one of the leaders of this new movement. And now he has one of the other primary leaders in prison. So after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Prison cell, 16 tough dudes. Not, not like, you know, endurance athlete dudes like me. These were, you know, buff dudes like that. And they're outside of the cell. And they're, um, they're guarding this guy. There's no way in the world he's going to escape this thing. And so Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Verse 6, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. So imagine this, he's laying down somehow or sitting up in an upright position probably in the cell against the wall, and soldier on his left, soldier on his right, chained to him. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. 
It's just funny, I think, you know? Peter! Peter! Wake up! Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. I'm sure he's heard in, you know, rushing, like, what's going on, right? Wrap, wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. <laughs> He's like, man, that prison pizza. Whew, I don't know. This is a crazy dream, but I like the dream. So let's go. And, and dare I say, I don't think he really had any faith that this was actually happening either. Verse 10, they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. And when they walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And then Peter came to himself. <laughs> Some of you know what it's like waking up from a dream, don't you? It's like, wait, wait, wait a minute. And, and most of the time, if you've ever had a bad dream and you woke up and you all of a sudden realize um, oh, phew, I'm actually in my bed, not seated in church in front of everybody in my underwear. You know, okay, thank goodness, right? He said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, who incidentally wrote the book of Mark, where many people had gathered and, and were praying. So they're at this house. There's people gathered in the house. They're praying for Peter. Oh, God, please save Peter, right? Verse 13, Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed, so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. I love the Bible. It's just so funny when you, when you read it. It's, it's real. This is, these are real accounts because this is actually stuff that would happen, right? Um, and so it's like, whoa, she just like can't even believe it. She runs back. Peter's at the door. Now, how, check out this. How's this for faith that God is actually going to answer a prayer? Verse 15. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. Like, oh, yeah, okay, it must just be his angel out there you're talking to. Like, sure, yeah, like Peter's out there. Ah, yeah, we're, just, just go away. We got to get, get back to praying that God will save Peter. <laughs> but Peter kept on knocking. I said he's a little louder now. Dude, I know I got rescued once, but, you know, if I stand out here knocking too long, the soldiers are going to come. So he kept knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him. They were astonished. How's that for faith? Oh, God, please rescue Peter. Oh, there's Peter. Oh, wow. Well, can't believe it. <laughs> Verse 17, Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. Now, this story is really kind of amusing in many ways and fun. But there's some troubling questions, actually, in this story. If you, if you didn't miss it, um, James 
John, Peter, James, John, the three, you know, the three. Uh, James just got killed with a sword. Why Peter, not James? And then this whole time, I mean, this is kind of interesting because as they're praying and God is answering the prayer in this incredible, remarkable way, they didn't even believe it. So they're praying, and, and, and in their hearts, they don't actually even believe that God's going to do the thing they're praying for. Can anybody identify with that? Come on. Now, how many times have we prayed when actually in our heart, we don't expect anything to happen, right? That's these guys. And let me tell you, in a way, that should be extremely comforting for us, right? God answered, they didn't even believe it. Peter thought he was dreaming, didn't even figure out it was God. And so, you know, this, this amazing story, when you start thinking about it, there's some, there's some troubling kind of questions in here that lead us into three different ideas that we're going to talk about that are all really tied together. And these are the three ideas we're going to discuss for the rest of our time this evening. And one of them is goes like this. If you have enough faith, it will fix anything. If you have enough faith, it'll fix anything. How many of you have heard the phrase, if you, you know, faith can move mountains? How many of you in real life know anybody that uh, has moved a mountain? That's a little problem, isn't it? I do know of one mountain that moved. It was a really cool story. Um, this is the only story I know. You can fill me in if you know of some others because it'd be cool. But this was up at Youth with a Mission Cimarron. And there was this beautiful property and this beautiful lake up in high meadows, this gorgeous area. And there was a dirty, rotten lawyer that cheated the, the Youth with a Mission base out of a section of land. And there was nothing they could do about it. And so they just let it go. Well, right after this happened, a short time later, there was a slump or an earthquake or something, and the land literally, the mountain moved, and that lake shifted from there onto the youth of the mission property. <laughs> I walked it. I mean, the land this like dirty, rotten scoundrel cheated them out of, trees going in every direction. I mean, it was totally, you know, worthless. It's kind of a crazy thing. Uh, I don't think anybody prayed for that to happen. Faith can move mountains, and, and really there's this kind of thought when it comes to faith that circles around Christian circles, that if you can just work up enough faith, if you can just believe it hard enough, you know what I'm talking about, if you can just e eradicate every ounce of doubt out of your heart or your mind, somehow it'll fix it. And people, here's what happens in the scriptures is people cherry pick a few scriptures here or there like, you know, faith can move mountains. You've heard that one, right? And, uh, and, and there's a few other ones here where Jesus says some things like, if you ask something in my name, you know, anything you ask in my name. And so you're like, Lamborghini, Lamborghini, Jesus name, Lamborghini, Jesus name. Why isn't it happening? Come on. And obviously that's an extreme. But for so many other areas in life, we, we, we go there, less extreme. And part of the problem is the difference in the English language and the Greek language. 
You see, in the, in the Greek language, in the English language, we, we have three words that, for one word in the Greek language that is faith. It's the same word and the same derivative word that's translated. And in, in, in English, there's three words, and those three words are this, faith, belief, and trust. Now, when you see faith, the first thing you think about faith is somehow, if you can eradicate all doubt, it's almost the power of positive thinking kind of thing. If you can just think it enough, if you can believe it without doubting, that's faith. And then you have belief, which is just an intellectual assent to something. Yes, right? I believe something is true. Two plus two equals four. I believe that is true, right? You do too. It can be an intellectual assent to the existence of God. In fact, in James, he says, well, yeah, the demons even believe there's one God. Duh. Actually, he didn't say duh. (laughs) But he said the demons believe there's one God. They tremble, actually. It freaks them out. They know. So there's an intellectual assent or a belief that you hold to be true. And then there's this word trust. And trust... Anytime you hear the word trust in the English language, it almost always communicates, without even having to say it, it communicates an action, doesn't it? If you trust, if you really trust your your 15-year-old teenage son, you're going to hand him the keys, aren't you? Some of you are like, nope. Why? Because you don't trust him. Not with that vehicle you don't, right? You bought a different vehicle for when they turn 15. That's the vehicle you're going to trust him with. Anybody remember repelling? Repelling. I can stand up on the edge of the cliff and say, I, I believe that rope holds, um, what is it, like three tons. They say, we could hang a Volkswagen van on this rope. And I'm like, okay, I don't know, right? What is trust, though? Trust is, is when you step up to the edge of that cliff, and what do they tell you? Lean back. And trust is when you go, okay, I know in my head that this is true. And so I'm going to choose to act on it anyway, right? There's always an action associated with trust. See, faith is is really about believing what God says and trusting him enough to obey. And this is the beautiful thing about this story we just read in the book of Acts, is that when it comes to faith, um, these guys, they had very shaky faith, didn't they? They're praying earnestly, but according to the text, they were astonished when Peter actually shows up. They couldn't believe it's him. They thought the servant girl was crazy. And so clearly, they didn't really have any great confidence in their hearts that anything was actually happening. And yet, what they had was the confidence to know that God says to pray in these situations, to pray earnestly. And so they're they're praying. They're bringing the situation to God. They're praying as if their lives depend on it or as Peter's lives depend on it. And God comes through and he answers that prayer in spite of their faith. And see, here's here's the thing about faith. and That's the thing about this thing, that if you can just work up enough faith, it puts the action on us. It puts the weight on us. But, but the beauty of, of biblical faith is it's not about the amount of faith. The reason 
the whole mountain and mustard seed thing is that was a tiny little seed. And, and the disciples were being called to do something they didn't want to do or think they could do. And so Jesus tells them, hey, I'm telling you, all it takes is a tiny little amount of faith and you can move a mountain. So you can clearly do, take the step of obedience that I'm calling you to take. It's about obedience. Faith is, is a belief that's anchored. It's about believing what God says, trusting that he's good, trusting that his purposes are good, and then stepping out and taking whatever step you know that is a step of obedience. And that's the thing I love about the stories. These guys were obeying. They were praying. And they couldn't even believe. They were shocked themselves. Now, Here's the part where we get in trouble with faith. Because everything up to that point is, you know, kind of encouraging. But if you remember this little passage of Scripture, it's called the Faith Hall of Fame. It's found in Hebrews chapter 11. The author of Hebrews just starts listing out this litany of these examples of people with great faith, great patriarchs who took steps of faith and obeyed God and saw God come through in just great victories and amazing things, right? And he, he gets down to the end of this long list and then he gives us 12 more names who also had these great victories and you're feeling pretty pumped at this time thinking, yeah, faith, right? If I can just get enough of that faith, if I can just tap into it. See, this is a, this is a common misconception that we have in our culture that faith is some kind of a force, if you can just access it or learn to harness it, you know, it's the old Star Wars kind of thing, right? Which I know all too well in my house because I have a 10-year-old son. Star Wars, it's like, can we talk about something else, right? And, and the author of Hebrews goes on, and then he shifts gears. And this is a very troubling thing because after this huge litanies of successes, it goes, and then there were others. You're like, uh-oh. Yeah, uh-oh. This should be a little disturbing. By faith, they were tortured, imprisoned, sawed in two, had financial devastation occur in their lives. And he goes on to, to conclude by saying, none of these people actually received what they were hoping for, but they all did these things by faith. He commends them. So clearly, faith isn't some sort of a magic formula that if you can just access enough of it, you can bend God's hand to do anything that you want. Paul, in, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about praying. Talk about a guy who must have had a lot of faith. And he prays about something three times, three seasons of intense prayer. And God says, nope, sorry. I'm not gonna take this thing away. And then he tells him, but what I'm going to give you is the grace to continue to walk through this. Actually, I'm going to allow you to experience this for a very specific reason in your life. I, I was reading in my research of one author that prayed and fasted for an infant baby, and the baby went on to die. And someone came up and said to them, we prayed for our kids before they were born, and they were all born healthy. Yeah, can you believe that? But see, that's where this kind of thinking of like, literally that somehow if you can just harness enough faith and if you can believe it hard enough and somehow if you can work it up and eradicate all doubt from your heart, that you're the one in control, puts you in the driver's seat. Faith is about humility. 
It's about really, it's about believing God. It's about coming to him and saying, I believe you are who you said you are and you'll do everything you said you did. And because of that, I'm gonna take whatever the step of obedience it is you're, you're calling me to take. Brings us to some troubling thoughts like at the beginning of this, right? Why did, why, why Peter, not James? Those are things we don't know the answer to, do we? See, there's this tension because it says without faith, it's impossible to please God. So what is that faith? Not something you can manipulate. It's something that humbly asks. It's something that trusts. It's something obeys. It's something that's always hopeful. This is God. You, you can do this. I remember when we first started praying about this building, my prayer literally was, God, you could give us this building. I mean, this is when, you know, we were like 35 people on a, on a Saturday night. It's like, God, you could give us this building. I know it's crazy, but I know you could do it. I don't know if that's your will in this situation, but I know you could. And there's a humility that needs to be involved in faith where we come and we present. He says, cast your cares on him. Ask him for what you want. Pray in faith. Pray for healing. And there's a tension, and we call it the tension of the already but not yet, that the kingdom of God is, is, is breaking in and it's here, but also it's, it's yet to fully come until Jesus comes back. And so we pray, and sometimes you pray and people are healed, and sometimes you pray and that doesn't happen. Sometimes you pray for a wayward child and God does some dramatic thing in their life and they come back. And other times you pray for decades and you're still waiting, Right? That's the reality. That's the tension you're living in. But where, where this idea that faith can fix anyone, because it places all the burden on you, it's an idea that ends up hurting people. And it can end up derailing people's faith. Second idea is pretty similar. It's this, following Jesus brings success. This is the I can do all things through Christ. In fact, one of the key verses of this, that Paul, you know, the, Paul, one of the super apostles, the same guy that he prayed and God told him sorry three times. He says this amazing, amazing thing in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And when you just take it on, on its own, this is like the ultimate pump you up verse. And where we end up bringing this into our lives and where this ends up causing pain in people's lives is right here. If I could just commit this test to God, I'm just gonna commit this test to God. I can do it. Well, are you cramming it all in the last hour? That doesn't matter. I'm committing it to God, right? If I just commit this business to God. Oh, okay, but have you done all your market research? I'm committing it to Jesus. I'm committing this relationship to God. That dude, really? I don't, I don't even know if he follows God. I, I know, but we just, we click, we connect. I know if I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And this verse can, can go on when misquoted. This verse can really, really bring a lot of pain in people's lives. See, you got to see this verse, and there's this important thing called context. Context. And here's the context. Here, context means when you read one thing in Scripture, you need to compare it to what the rest of Scripture says. And then you need to ask yourself, how does this actually line up with what I know about the way life actually works? 
the context, Philippians 4, 12. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Kind of changes the meaning a little, doesn't it? And here's the great truth. Here's the great principle that you need to, to remember when it comes to these kind of things is this, that God will give you the grace to walk through whatever you're going through. People say really dumb things like God would never give you something you can't handle. That's hurtful for people who are going through tragic, difficult things. But the promise, like we just said, the Apostle Paul, the promise is he will give you grace. And no, you can't go through it on your own. But grace is the promise that he will give you what it takes to get through. That's something I've seen in the lives of people who've gone through extremely, extremely difficult things. Things that you or I couldn't imagine going through and think, I don't think I could make it through. And you're right. Apart from his grace, I can do all things through Christ. But nowhere in Scripture do you find the promise that following Jesus will bring you success. I hate to break the news to you. That somehow this is going to be the catch-all thing that's going to bring you great success. Now, the, the tension in this is there's a lot of principles in, in Scripture. There's Proverbs, there's principles, there's wisdom. When you align your life the way of Jesus, life tends to work better. And so that's the catch-22 is actually your life will go much, much better. But when you turn that principle into a promise that somehow I'm following you, Jesus, so that you will make my life better, you're just setting yourself up for hurt and heartache. Because that's not the way that life works, is it? And the last thing I just want to mention, something that's particularly painful and hurtful for people, and that's happy talk. Happy talk. And if you've gone through something really rough in life, you've probably experienced something like this. It, and it's from people with the best of intentions. Happy Talk goes like this. What you're going through is a blessing in disguise. You're like, really? What you're going through must be part of God's plan for your life. You're like, so God planned out this tragedy. God must be up to something. God doesn't make mistakes. And all of these tie into this big idea here that everything happens for a reason. Now, here's the thing. I know some of you are like shifting in your seats going, what's he saying up here right now? Hear me out on this. Because there's always truth in ideas that end up derailing people. Oftentimes there's truth, some truth in them, right? And a lot of those statements actually have some real elements of truth. God's always up to something, isn't he? God's always working. That song we just learned tonight, he's always at work. He's in control. He's king of the universe. He's always good. And yet the error um, in this, everything happens for a reason. This is actually true. But the reason, and here, here's the issue, 
The reason isn't always that everything is specifically the direct result of something God causes. God did not cause Satan to rebel. God didn't cause Adam and Eve to introduce sin into the world. God didn't cause David to sleep with Bathsheba and go on to kill her husband. God didn't cause the crowd to ask for Barabbas instead of Jesus and to chant crucify. See, a principle you see over and over in Scripture is is this idea that everyone has a choice. Choose you today whom you will serve. And each one bears the responsibility for their own choice. And so this, this kind of idea that everything happens for a reason, it really comes from another writing, a very complicated chapter by a guy named Paul. And, and here's what this verse says, and I'm sure most of you can quote it before I put it up here, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and, are, and who are called according to his purpose. This, is, this one is one of the most famous, actually probably perhaps the most misquoted or the most quoted verse in the Bible, both from people that actually follow Jesus and people who don't. Probably right behind, thou shalt not judge. Bro. Which means something different than you think it means. Bro actually isn't in the Bible, but normal, normally the people that are quoting to you, that's the way it comes across. Thou shalt not judge. Don't judge me, bro. Jesus said, don't judge me. All right. Another talk, another conversation. Let's wrap this up. Part of it, the problem is um, English morphs over years, right? Charity and love used to have synonymous meanings. Now charity is all about just giving money away. And, and in the original uh, King James English version, Shakespearean English, things morph a little bit. And here's, here's the NIV reading, and I really like the reading of this. Romans 8, 28 says this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. That in all things, God ultimately, whatever, whatever you're going through, God is working for good in your life. And ultimately, on a big eternal scale, he's going to bring good, unimaginable good to your life. But not everything that happens in your life is good. And not everything that happens in your life is directly caused by God. Don't blame every disease or financial disaster or bad relationship on God. And it's so important to differentiate between what what God allows and what God causes. There are plenty of things that, that God permits to happen in this life, but he does not prefer. Why else would Jesus command us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven? And often the hardships that you're facing are a result of sinful choices, things you did for your, to yourself, if you're honest, right? And you know that. Or life in a fallen world. Paul says, creation was subjected to frustration. That the world has fallen, that has a toll on the, on the whole of the, of the world as well, right? Who 
Anybody in the room has not experienced Murphy's Law? (laughs) Or foolish decisions. We just did this series on wise choices. Sometimes it's just foolish choices in life that are the result of things. Sinful choices or foolish choices. David, the kingdom being split in two. Even though David was allowed to go on and write a good portion, a big chunk of scripture, and God was faithful to his promise, and God you know, brought Solomon, he, the heartache he went through because of his sinful choice was incredible, right? Now, here's the thing. Here's the lovely thing about this verse. Is we all know sometimes God takes a bad situation and brings good out of it, right? And some of you have experienced that, and that's called grace. The situation that God brought out of your pain, even when you've caused it. But here's the beautiful promise that we have in Scripture. You've got to look at the context. Romans 8, 18, this whole little section. And we're not going to read much of it. I can't wait. One of these, I, I keep praying about the right timing. We're going to tackle the whole book of Romans, and it'll be epic. Do it. But I'm not ready yet. Or maybe you're not ready. I don't know. All right. Here's what he said. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So writing to a bunch of people who are being persecuted, he says, I know we're going through such a hard time right now, but there will be a day. There will be a day when none of this will matter. It won't there will be a day when just the suffering and this life and all this pain that we're going through, it'll, it'll just lose its significance. Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? See, this is where Paul is building to with this whole argument. He's going he's gonna, to, in every situation, he is working for your good. And ultimately, his good eternal purposes, it will all work together. Eternity will be more than you can even ever imagine. But here's where it's leading. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Doesn't sound like a good time, Paul. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And here's how he closes this. What many theologians consider one of the most epic chapters of scripture, Romans 8. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ our Lord. Isn't that amazing? I hope you have that memorized. If you don't, you need to write down that reference and you need to memorize that this week. This is the promise. This is the promise. And see, the errors are that if you have enough faith, it'll fix every, anything. But the promise is his presence. Nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing can separate you from his promise. The, the other thing, following Jesus brings success. Guess what? Not promised. But nothing can separate you. Everything happens 
for a reason. Okay, but that reason isn't always that God is the direct cause of it. Sometimes it's just because you live in a fallen world. Sometimes it's because you really blew it. But the promise is this, that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That he loved you so much that he sent his only son to die for you. That he's adopted you. If you put your faith and trust in him, he's adopted you into his family. That you have freedom, that you have life in him. That you have hope in him. That's an amazing, awesome promise, isn't it? I just want us to close this way. Let's read this out loud together one time. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you stand with me? I just want you to embrace this promise. I want you to pray prayers of faith, but do it for the right reason, because you believe God is a good God and wants to move for good in the lives of people, and there's grace for you. Let me just pray for you. And as we close our, our eyes and bow our heads some, perhaps for someone in the room, there's an aha moment tonight. And you realize either you, you've been investigating Jesus um, for the wrong reasons. You thought it was just for success or to make your life happier. But the real reason is he's promised you eternity with him. And the real reason, he's love, he loves you and he's pursuing you. And so if that's you in this room, I just want to invite you right now to respond to him. And you could pray a prayer or something like this after me. Lord Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. I put my faith and trust in you. I turn from my sin and I want to follow you. Forgive me. Welcome me into your family. In Jesus' name. And Lord, for all my other friends, I pray for those that are going through hard times right now that you would just give them hope. And for all of us, that you would allow us to just ground and root our lives on your truth and your love. And that would be our anchor, Lord. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.